Good morning. Open up with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through to chapter 10, verse 14. 9, 24 to 10, 14. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee. From idolatry. This is God's holy and active and inspired word. Let's ask God now to bless the reading of it, the preaching of it, so that we might grow under it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. It is a light unto our path. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. And Father, we pray that you would use it even now. As a master surgeon to excise from our hearts unbelief and sin and to instill within us a greater capacity to believe and to run well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is always impressive to watch top-tier athletes dominate in any given sport. More so when you consider the years and years of selfless dedication that it takes to be able to perform at their chosen sport. There's a significant degree of self-denial that needs to take place if you're ever going to participate in something like the Olympics. Years of like, you know, waking up at 4 a.m. Only eating what your sports nutritionist schedules for you to eat. No more, no less at the right time giving up any and every social engagement with friends because of your time commitments to train. Literally, years and years of your life spent in preparation for one moment 
One game. One race. Can you imagine? What it must be like if you're one of those selected to represent your country. And in the moment, you actually, in that race that you've dedicated years to, you actually come in last. And you're eliminated. Perhaps only by a hundredth of a second. A half second slower than the next guy. And it's all over. Years and years of work all decided in a 20 second race and you're done. It's all over. No gold medal. This is essentially the metaphor Paul uses to move his readers and to move us from exhortation to motivation and finally to warning. The exhortation which we saw last week was to live in such a way that we make every effort to have and to be an effective witness. To win unbelievers, no matter who they are or where they're coming from, Paul has exhorted us to engage with them in such a way that we don't allow any cultural accoutrement to get in the way of the gospel. Like Paul, we must become all things to all people in order that we might win some. That was his exhortation to us that we saw last week. But there's supreme danger in that, isn't there? By becoming all things to all people, we might actually become more impacted by those people than we are by Christ. Look, that's been the number one problem plaguing the Corinthian church. They're a community of believers who are unfortunately beginning to look more and more like the world around them. They're given over to celebrity culture, like the Greek Corinthians are. They're comfortable with sexual perversions that looks like the world around them. And they're even succumbing to a kind of Corinthian egalitarianism, which downplays the differences between male and female. We'll see that in chapter 11 and chapter 12. Honestly, it's almost like we're reading a letter written to the church in America. And Paul has been warning them. For the sake of the gospel, you need to be distinct. You need to be set apart. That's what the word saint means, the set apart ones. You're saints called by God to walk in the spirit and communicate and live out the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're salt. Don't lose your saltiness. And he's just told them that their witness to unbelievers needs to be likewise modeled on Jesus Christ. Giving up any and every liberty you have in order to serve and be a servant to love people enslaved to sin. So that by God's grace you can call them to freedom in the gospel. But beware. In engaging your neighbors and becoming servants to them. Don't become Like them. And what he'll do here is show us four truths on how we are to maintain this balance. Walk this fine line, this essential fine line of being in the world, but not of the world. The first truth, we'll probably spend the most of our time in this. In chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, he calls us to the duty of self-discipline. The duty of self-discipline. Next, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, he warns us of the danger of self-deception. 
the danger of self-deception. Thirdly, in verses 6 through 10, he gives us examples or demonstrations of evil desire. Demonstrations of evil desire. And lastly, in verses 11 through 14, he reminds us of our divine deliverance. So first, we see the duty set before us of self-discipline. Look there in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul, the wise communicator that he is, uses an example the Corinthians would have been familiar with. Every other year in the city of Corinth, there were the Isthmian Games, which were held kind of another kind of Olympic Games. And he uses here the metaphor of these games and the athletes that would have participated in these games. Those who would have competed, they needed to have self-control. They needed to have the discipline in order for them to win the prize. And he uses that as an image for the Christian life. What makes these specimens of athletic splendor do what they do? Verse 25. They do it for a perishable wreath. A perishable wreath that will not last. Paul's point is clear. What it is they give their lives for is fading and futile. Even the fame that is no doubt wrapped up in winning an athletic event, even that won't last. You'll only end up being just another forgotten name written in a book somewhere lost to history. The greatest moment in the lives of these athletes ends up being nothing. As Ecclesiastes will put it, simply chasing after the wind. But not so the Christian. Our end, our goal, our prize is a crown of unfading glory, unfading enjoyment of the one who is unchangeable in his eternal splendor. And take notice of the contrast that Paul uses here. I I think it's meant to put Christians to shame a little bit. If these Corinthian athletes are exerting this much effort in order to attain a prize like this, a mere headband made out of pine twigs, you get at some, you know, music festival, How much more effort ought we to exert in attaining the end of our salvation, eternal life with Christ? Some commentators try and say that Paul doesn't mean that by not winning the race, we somehow lose our salvation. They'll argue that Paul only means that by not winning the race, we, you know, we fail to attain a crown of reward for our ministry, some, some bit of congratulations over and above salvation. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. The context that follows, I think, makes the point well for us. The Israelites failed to enter the promised land because of their sin. 
The illustration is meant to show us that we too can fail to enter into eternal glory because of our sin. What does Paul say the Christian's prize is if we run and finish the race? Verse 25, an imperishable wreath, an imperishable crown, the Greek word stephanon for crown. This is the same crown of righteousness Paul says all believers ought to expect to all who have longed for Christ's appearing, 2 Timothy 4.8. This is the crown of life that is of eternal life, which James in James 1 verse 2 says is promised to all those who love Christ. This is the crown which John in Revelation 2 verses 10 and 11 says that all those who receive this crown will not be hurt by the second death, which is just another way of saying eternal damnation. In other words, when Paul is doing, what Paul is encouraging Christians to do here is what? With self-control and a life of self-discipline, we are to, verse 24, run in order to obtain that crown. Verse 26, don't run aimlessly. Run with purpose, with discipline, self-control. What's he saying? In this world where we are inevitably engaging with the world, we will always be drawn and have a proclivity to relax and find our groove, not in running after the gospel, but in the ways of the world. To let our guards down and to begin to enjoy a little bit here, a little bit there, and more and more the pleasures of this world. What he's saying is that we have a proclivity to not take our Christian walk and our Christian life so seriously and become more and more a part of this world. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Run! Those Christians who will have heaven, they must run for it. Oh, that we'd heed Paul's warning here well. Don't you know that those who run in a race have to run the whole race, says Paul? And only then do you get your prize? Here's a race of eternally more significance. Run, I tell you. The prize is heaven, says Paul. And if you'll have it, you've got to run for it. Some Christians are afraid that if we speak like this, then we must not believe in the eternal security of the believer. They're afraid that, you know, we might be preaching something like a Christian can lose his salvation. And that's a rotten conclusion. Paul himself loved the doctrine of our eternal security in Christ. He knew that no Christian could lose his salvation. But it was precisely teachings like this, which we find here, which warmed his heart to and made real his need to persevere and not stop running. Do you know why Paul believed he could never lose his salvation? Because he wholeheartedly believed that the warnings to stop running were in fact real and that he could in the end show that he was never really a believer in the first place. This is exactly what we see in that great passage in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance. Run without stopping your running. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There's our prize. The unending crown of glory. 
It is to behold and to be beheld by our glorious Savior, our risen Lord, our beautiful bridegroom, the Son of God himself, and to hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You never quit. Run, dear Christian. And don't stop running. Run through your temptations. Run through your afflictions. Run through your valleys of sorrow and sadness. Run through your fears and run through all persecutions, knowing that the end is near and Christ is to be had. Listen here to the Apostle Paul himself and heed his call. Never stop running. My dad loved football. And so from a young age, he wanted to teach me how to play football. We grew up in countries where they played the other kind of football, soccer. So that's what I grew up loving. But he loved American football. And I remember at age eight, you know, he'd give me the ball. He says, you've got to run through me. I'm going to try and tackle you. Don't just try and get around me. Put your shoulder down and run through me. Or if he had the ball and I had to tackle him, run through me. Don't try and push me. Run through me. As I grew older, that, that advice serves you well in actually playing football. You can knock some guys down no matter how big they are. Friends, that's the, that's the advice. Run through as if it's not even there. Because if we do that, what does Paul say in verse 27? I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In Joshua 20, the Lord gives these wonderful set of instructions to the Israelites, specifically instructions on what to do if you've accidentally killed somebody and there wasn't anyone around to be a witness to verify that it was indeed an accident. God set up for the Israelites these particular cities called cities of refuge. And he says in Joshua 20, if you've unintentionally slaughtered a man, manslaughter, you're to flee to those cities and plead your case there. But he specifically says, quote, flee to the city of refuge. You could translate that, fly to it. Get there as quickly as you can. Why? Because the avenger of blood will be hard at your heels to take vengeance on you for the offense you have committed. You see, the ancient Israelites lived in a world where if one of your family members was killed by someone, the men in the family went to go avenge the death of that slaughtered family member. It was a brutal world, a world of honor and blood vengeance. And God, in his mercy, provided the Israelites these cities of refuge to find protection from an angry mob of bereaved family members who wanted nothing but your head on a stake. And so what was the command? Flee. Run. Run to the city. And friends, that's our image. Don't you know that there is a blood avenger hot on your tail? The accuser, Satan himself? Run to the heavenly city. Flee from the avenger and don't stop running. The moment you stop is the moment he's caught up with you and he has you and he'll take you out. So we keep running. We keep making fellowship and gathered worship a priority. We dare not give up our communing with Christ through reading the Bible and daily time in prayer. 
We fight and we discipline against the constant onslaught of sin and temptation. And we keep on running every day until finally we find our ultimate safety in that glorious city of refuge, the heavenly Jerusalem. We sang this morning that even when I'm weary with the cost, I see the triumph of the cross. So in its shadow, I shall run till he completes the work begun. There's no giving up for the true Christian. I wonder if you've ever thought about when Lot and his wife were running from the destruction of Sodom, fleeing into the safety of the, of the mountains surrounding hills. The text actually says in Genesis 19, it says that Lot's wife, who was behind Lot, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And yet, you see And this is so interesting. You see that neither what she did nor even God's judgment upon her even made Lot stop for a split second and look behind him. Have you sometimes wondered about Lot in that particular episode? We often take lessons from Lot's wife. Don't be like her. But what about Lot? His wife, who was behind her, looked behind her and died immediately. But even still, Lot, listening to what God commanded, would not so much as even turn around for a glance. Husbands, I'm not saying stop loving your wives. Don't, that's not the application here. Lot's heart was set on flying to safety, running to those mountains that God directed him toward, fleeing from the wrath to come, no matter what else was going on beside him. There was the mountain before him and the fire and brimstone behind him. His life lay in the balance and he would have lost it if he had but looked behind him even once. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, I wonder, is this how you see your Christian life? I pray you're not merely floating comfortably. You know, the Six Flags lazy river outlook on Christianity, looking this way and that. You're in a race for your life. And in that race, yes, remember Lot's wife. Remember her doom. Remember that God made her an example for all who might be lazy runners. But also remember Lot. And like Lot, keep running. Why does Paul say that he disciplines his body and keeps it under control? Lest after preaching to others, he himself should be disqualified. Because Paul knows, and he wants the Corinthians to know, and he wants us to know that just because you're preaching the gospel, just because you're evangelizing, just because you're a part of a church where the gospel is preached and Jesus is worshipped, and you, you happen to invite people to that church, none of that means anything unless you're running with faithful vigor and intensity. And here's the crucial part, unless you make it to the end. And so next, Paul wants to warn us against the danger of self-deception. He calls us to take seriously the duty of self-discipline, run. Now he reminds us of the danger of self-deception. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. 
Paul's imagery shifts here. He moves away from the athletic track to now looking at the history of Israel, the history of God's people in the wilderness. And what he highlights is one of the biggest threats to Christian perseverance. I wonder how you would answer that question. What is one of the biggest threats to your perseverance as a believer? What's the biggest threat to your running and finishing the race well? Is it the enticement of money? Of pleasure? Of fame? Or perhaps it's the crippling nature of suffering and pain that causes you to wonder about God and his goodness? For Paul, one of the biggest snares that keeps Christians from reaching the end is presumption. The danger of self-deception. It's the mentality that imagines that somehow we'll all make it through into heaven in the end because what? Well, because I've gone to church. Or I consistently go to church. I pray. It's the presumption, the widespread presumption that I'm not really a bad person. That I'm basically alright and that God isn't offended at my sin and his divine wrath isn't aimed at my rebellion. What rebellion? It's the presumption that just because I participate in outward religious exercises that somehow that makes me holy and set apart. Look, apparently even Paul had to fight against the presumption, right? He understood that even he could find himself disqualified even though he preached to an entire continent of people. Verses 1 through 5 gives a list of merely external identification marks. God's people did these things, and the list he brings up finds correlations in the Christian church. They are types of what we enjoy now. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. But what's Paul's punchline? What's his kind of spiritual punch in the gut? Verse 25. Even though they did all these things that serve as outward markers, which identify them as the people of God, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Do you see? You can do all the things. Get baptized. Join a church. Take the Lord's Supper. Volunteer in the church and all the activities, and still God could be not pleased with you. If I could address the children here for just a moment, you must fight against the temptation, the lie that you are right with God simply because your parents are Christians, simply because. You're growing up or you've grown up in the church and you know about the Bible and you know about God and Jesus. There's a constant temptation to think that my entrance into heaven is because of who my mom and dad are. Your children, I pray that you would Take more seriously who you are as fallen sinners before a holy and righteous God 
and find supreme, supreme freedom in the forgiveness that comes from Christ alone. He stands as an older brother with his arms open saying, find rest in me. I'm your righteousness. Not your mom, not your dad. Not the fact that you wake up early to go to church with your parents, but in Christ alone. We can participate in all the outward rights and privileges of God's grace and yet in the end still be under God's displeasure. There's a real danger in self-deception. Phil read and prayed for us earlier this morning from Philippians 2, where Paul calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he ends that call by saying, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, you may be proud that you did not run in vain. Do you see? I think the saddest thing in the world might be that person who went through all the motions of being a Christian, but themselves never really trusted in Christ. They trusted in the actions. They did, maybe even joyfully, all the activities, but not in the one to whom the activities pointed. And so in the end, even though they thought they were running the race, they were still disqualified. They ran in vain. It's a great thing to start to run the Christian race, to be, you know, like Israel before us, brought out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. To start well is good, but to finish well is even more important. And look, Paul is concerned here that the Corinthians, especially those Corinthian Christians who had strong consciences, those who knew that idols were really nothing and that they could, with a clear conscience, eat the steak that had previously been offered at the temple, The danger Paul sees is that they may also be led into an over-easy attitude to the whole thing. You know, Christians saying, we don't need to worry about pagan festivals. We're safe because we're Christians. We don't need to worry about the Green Man Festival. We don't need to worry about the dangers of alcohol. We don't need to be alarmed about the dangers of what we watch on Netflix. We don't need to be concerned really about the kind of music we listen to. You know, because I've been baptized and I'm free to enjoy my liberties in Christ. All things are lawful for me. But what does Paul say? I will not be enslaved by anything. Lest I not make it and be disqualified. Just because you go to church, dear Christian, doesn't mean you automatically have some kind of immunization against sin and temptation And that you can't be tripped up by the things of this world and stumble and fall in such a way that you won't get up. You won't finish the race. And let's be honest here. Just as a a side 2021 application. If you're not taking part in the ordinary means of grace. If you're not habituating in a regular way church and church fellowship and the reading of God's word, and the hearing of God's word preached, and the taking of the Lord's Supper among God's people, and none of that is really in your life, you should be even more alarmed. When those things are absent, you're far more likely to be in that dangerous place of drifting away and falling away through self-deception. But we also don't want to make the other mistake of thinking that just because we have these activities, we will or they will by themselves carry us home. 
running out of time. So I want to briefly hit the last two points that Paul makes here. The third point is that if we begin to drift and find ourselves deceived, trusting more in what we do at church than we do in Jesus, running with all our might to continue to pursue and love Jesus, well, then we'll find ourselves desiring evil. That's the third point. Paul gives us examples or demonstrations of evil desire in verses 6 through 10. These things took place as examples for us. Now, that's a wild verse right there. Paul says, what happened to the Israelites happened under God's providence, typologically as examples for us. And they were written down for us, verse 11. They were written down for us so that we might learn from their example. So what's the lesson we need to learn? Verse 6 again, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of, as some of them were. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Or verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did. Their desire for evil expressed itself in four ways specifically. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God's patience, and grumbling. These are the four great snares which enticed and disqualified the Israelites. These were the four great sins to which the Corinthians were being ensnared. Make no mistake, these are the four vices, I think, front and present in our culture today. They are our biggest temptation. Idolatry, to trust in and worship anything else other than God. Sexual immorality, provoking God and not trusting his goodness. And grumbling against God and his providence over us. Why does Paul bring these up? His lesson is, again, to make sure we're not self-deceived and that we don't stop running the race we've been called to. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. In Corinth, the church showed it depended far more on religious externals, on excitement, cultural influence, or powerful manifestations of gifts or wisdom. But Paul is saying it was all self-delusional. Relying on anything other than our Lord is a delusion. True Christian lives moment by moment in dependence upon Christ. We're never strong enough to break free of the life support that comes through him. Verse 12 indicates that those who imagine, whether it's because of previous experiences or your current blessings and comfort, maybe you know you, you walked the aisle one day and gave your life to Christ. Your long record of Christian service. And you somehow think that you're strong and definitely making it into heaven because of that. And Paul says, friends, we can't be delusional. I've written in my Bible here, underlined next to verse 12, a name of a preacher, somewhat well-known preacher, a man who I uh, have looked up to throughout my ministry and and set as a model of a godly pastor and an excellent preacher of God's word. And I have his name here. And I have the date, 
7-23-2018 on hearing this man's fall and having an affair. Help me run, Lord. Help me endure faithfully under temptation and escape to safety and not be deluded by my preaching. When I heard this man preach, there was hardly a moment where I would walk away untouched. I mean, the man broke holes into your heart through his preaching. And yet apparently for years, he'd step down from the pulpit and go hang out with his side chick somewhere. In recent news, a very famous apologist who has uh, since passed away, has come to light that for years he had engaged in activity that showed him to be far more in line with the world than with anything and everything he preached. I got through my philosophy degree at Frostburg because of the books and the teachings of this apologist. And yet, we have no assurance right now that he's in heaven. Disqualified. Oh, dear friends, let's not trust that just because we're going through the actions that we're somehow close to getting into heaven. No matter where we are in life, how old we are, run. Paul ends in verses 12 and 13 with our divine deliverance, and we'll end there. It says, 13 and 14, I'm sorry, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's a well-known passage. I just want to end with the image I think that Paul is laying out here. When he says he will provide a way of escape, the image isn't so much as God holding the temptation up and you being able to like kind of quickly get out before it all crumbles down and and, and topples you. The image is of a way like a path through a foggy, cloudy valley, and the mountains of temptation seem to be closing in. And he's saying, insofar as we keep our eyes glued on Christ and according to his word, there is a way out of that temptation. And the Christian, so long as he doesn't stop to picnic in the valley of temptation, to stop and smell the pleasurable roses that are enticing him off of the path and into the valley of sin and darkness, but keeps on walking and running through that way, though it be narrow, we will get to the gate. And Christ will welcome us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Just one step in front of the other. Don't stop. Keep running. Christ will continue to run with us. Let's pray.